So did you guys uh, catch the kerfuffle today? Oh, some of you caught it, some of you didn't. <laughs> it was all part of the plan, just to stir things up a bit. <laughs> so we are going to do the Brahma Viharas a little bit tonight. You know, the chanting sit is uh, pretty short, but we'll do a little bit. I don't think I've done a Brahma Vihara at all, so I'll do a little bit, and then we'll do a chant, and that'll be our Brahma Vihara. (laughs) So, I am going to talk about going home, which is probably... I like my friend, uh, Rachel Lewis says that going home is actually part two. We're in the heart of the retreat and going home is the second half of the retreat, which is really what it is. But when I talk about going home, I like to start with a poem. And uh, I've been vacillating between whether I should explain the poem and then read it or read it and then explain it. So I've decided I'm going to read it and then explain it. This is probably one of the most moving poems that I have ever... Is is my voice loud enough? It's good? Okay. It's probably one of the most moving poems... Um, but it's from great, Joy Harjol. It's called uh, Grace. And Joy Harjol writes in imagery. And so this poem is in imagery. And I'll explain my understanding of the imagery after I read it. She says, I think of wind and her wild ways, the year we had nothing to lose and lost it anyway in the cursed country of the fox. We still talk about that winter, how the cold froze imaginary buffalo on the stuffed horizons of snowbanks, the haunting voices of the starved and mutilated broke fences, crashed our thermostat dreams, and we couldn't stand it one more time So once again, we lost a winter in stubborn memory. Walked through cheap apartment walls, skated through fields of ghosts into a town that never wanted us in the epic search for grace. Like coyote, like, like coyote, like rabbit, we could not contain our fear clowned our way through a season of false midnights. We had to swallow that town with laughter so it would go down easy as honey. And one morning, as the sun struggled to break ice and our dreams found us with coffee and pancakes in a truck stop along Highway 80, we found grace. I could say Grace was a woman with time on her hands or a white buffalo escaped from memory. But in that dingy light, it was a promise of balance. We once again understood the talk of animals and spring was lean and hungry with the hope of children and corn. I would like to say with Grace... We picked ourselves up and walked into the spring thaw. We didn't. The next season was worse. You went home to Leech Lake to work with the tribe, and I went south. And wind, I am still crazy. I know there is something larger than the memory of a dispossessed people. We have seen it. That's my poem. I read this poem after every single retreat to remind me what it is I'm stepping into. 
I think of us, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like practic- as practitioners, we are a dispossessed people. And we are going from one world into another world that doesn't really feel like it wants us. So when she talks about the imagery of winter, she's talking about suffering, what we know of as suffering. It's, it's uh, dealing with all the aversion, all the uh, ill will, the violence, the anger, helplessness, all of that energy, and how we have to pretty much laugh our way through it in order for it to go down, in order for us to be in a world that is not full of practitioners like we are in this room. We are in a world that is full of mostly non-practitioners. And in our kind of dispossessed way, we have to learn to be in the winter of all that. And she uses spring, this kind of spring, to talk about freedom. That's what she says she uses the spring to point to. And I think of it as practitioners, it's this depiction of freedom for us in this interconnectedness, a sense of belonging, a sense of knowing who we are, the samadhi on retreat, I mean the laughter and the growth in practice that we begin to see. And this this measure, this way that she brings grace, what I think of grace as samadhi, stillness, acceptance, this place that we can get to, And we can get to it in this very common moment in time, in a truck stop. I know whatever country you're from, you got truck stops, and they all look the same. They got like a little pancake restaurant there. Not much, but in that truck stop, that's when they re-found their samadhi. You can find what it is that we think we have cultivated here in some of the most ordinary places, out of the blue. It can come to us. And so there's a way in which this poem is pointing to the ordinariness of what we have attained here. It's ordinary. It shows up in our ordinary lives and that's what I want to talk about, is how, how is it that we can have this kind of show up in our ordinary life? Um, and one last thing. You know, it didn't get better. It kind of all fell apart. She added, then it was gone. And it sort of goes that way. We have it, and then it goes away. And there's something to that I think is very important, having practiced for over 30 years. There's something to the coming together, finding it, and losing it, and finding it, and losing it, and finding it, and losing it. Um, That really makes us uh, cultivate a completely different relationship with the Dhamma. So just in case, you mistakenly believe that our world is somehow worse than Buddha's world. Before we talk about our world, I really owe this to Brian, read this on a retreat I was on one time. He read it in his Dhamma talk, and it took me forever to search and hunt it down and find it so that I could read it. Because this is the Buddha explaining what his world looked like when he stepped into practice. He said, fear is born from arming oneself. Just see how many people fight. I'll tell you about the dreadful fear that causes me to shake all over. Seeing creatures flop around like fish in 
water too shallow, so hostile to one another. And seeing this, I became afraid. This world completely lacks essence. It trembles in all directions. I long to find a place, uh, find myself a place unscathed, but I could not see it. And seeing people locked in conflict, I became completely distraught. But then I discerned here a thorn, hard to see, lodged deep in the heart. It's only when pierced by this thorn that one runs in all directions. So if that thorn is taken out, one does not run and settles down. It's in this knowing here, there's something about what I think the Buddha is pointing to that comes most close to where we are when we're leaving a retreat, especially a long retreat. Because many of you, if not all of you, to some degree, have taken out the thorn that's in your heart and you've settled down. And you can feel that settled downness, not running about like you were. Even though the stuff that was on your mind when you came to the retreat is showing up now, there's still this kind of settled down feeling that begins to happen. And the mind can just wander about however it wants. So when I think of Buddha, I always think of him as this courageous, kind, still being. But this person who was uh, talking in this uh, uh, arming oneself sutta, that's Siddhartha. That's the Buddha, the man, who is pretty much scared, just like we are, scared of everything. It's a very violent world he lived in. Sounds like ours. Very, you know, like, uh, uh, it doesn't seem to have any essence to it or something's amiss, something's wrong. And we keep looking out there, out in the world, and in, in a bit, a day or two, you will begin to look out into the world and you will see all of this mess that's all about us. And it can lead us to believe that that out there is what's making us shake in here. But since we've been here, we've begun to learn that even when we're not in that We still do a lot of shaking in here. And that shaking is not coming from out there. It's coming from up in here, wherever the mind is. It's somewhere. (laughs) That's where it's coming from. I don't know. I think I've been in other people's minds when I'm sitting on a tree stand. Woo! I gotta get out of here. So it's not, it's not. This, this world out there, it is difficult in the world out there. There's no doubt about that. But somehow, we've come to this understanding that if I do the work of settling in here, you can settle more. And some of you have noticed when you come into the meetings, you might be talking about the exact same hindrance that you've been talking about all retreat. And yet, when you come into the, these later meetings, that relationship is completely different. It's completely different. It's not like, how do I get rid of this? It's more like, oh, yeah, I saw that. I saw it try to sneak in and, you know, came and went. Completely different relationship more settled uh, and just noticing what's happening. So I like to read this sutta to remind me that even though Buddha, Siddhartha, I should say, he came from privilege. I mean, he came from money. We all know privilege. I don't know the privilege of race. 
but I know the privilege of having an education, and I know the privilege of having English as my first language. I've seen that. I know the privilege of not being an immigrant. So I do know privilege. And there's an arrogance and expectation that comes with privilege. We have a way of expecting life to be a certain way. So I'm assuming that's the way Siddhartha was. He kind of expected life to be a certain way. Mingyur Rinpoche wrote a book, if you haven't read it, called In Love with the World. Oh my God, I love that book. Because Mingyur Rinpoche was born and recognized as a Toku Rinpoche reincarnated Lama, very young. And so he was protected his entire life. I mean, full-on servants protected. Don't even have to dress yourself. Just kind of like let other people dress you, whatever that's like. He didn't have to worry if his food was well cared for, cooked or nothing. Everything is taken care of for him his whole life. And he wanted to go and see what the world was like without any attendance, just to go on a retreat and be in the world. He had it all planned out, and believe me, he wrote his book. He talked about what he had to do to plan to get out of that monastery without anyone knowing, because there wasn't a living soul in that monastery that would let him go anywhere without them with him. So he had to sneak out in the dead of night. (laughs) And when he snuck out, he forgot. There were some arrangements he didn't quite plan for. So he's out at night. His taxi didn't come on time. We understand that, but he didn't understand that. And he's worried now about getting to the train on time so he can get up out of here. And he's like, all the stuff... Then when he gets on the train, he writes in great detail his absolute disgust about being around people touching him. Touching him, they smell. He doesn't like it. He can't be here. He just is overwhelmed, not planning on this. This is sort of what happens to us when we live in this world of privilege. We don't know we're living in the world of privilege. We think we're more open to everything until that privilege gets stripped away. And what retreat is sort of like is stripping away some of that privilege. And now we're going to go back into the world where that privilege exists. But... He, you know, that in his book, Minyur, the reason why I love it so much is because it's the first time I ever saw or ever heard someone that's a realized being talk about how difficult it is to be in spaces where you're not in your privilege. He talked about how uncomfortable he was. He talked about crying That's a realized being, and he is in the little homeless shelter section at the train station crying because he didn't plan for all of this, and it's overwhelming to him, and he doesn't quite know what to do, but he keeps coming back to his practice. No matter how difficult things get, and he talks about how difficult it is, and then he talks about trying to find his practice in the middle of that. Everything is disrupted, finds his practice, keeps finding his practice. This is what I think um, the retreat is for. The Buddha gave this example of a raft. He asked his uh, monastics, monks, really. I don't think there was any nuns with him at the time, but he said, um, suppose you're on a shore... And you see this expansive waterway, huge, expansive waterway. And you're on this shore, and the near shore that you're on, it is pretty risky, dubious, problematic. And you want to get over there to the far shore because it looks safe and serene. So how do you get there? There's no 
bridge. There's no boat to ferry you across. How do you get there? And he says, you could consider. I'm going to take some twigs. I'm going to take some uh, sticks. And I'm going to make myself a raft. And you can put the effort in to make a raft. Tuck in grasses and twigs and branches, however they do the raft-making stuff. You make a raft. I'm afraid my raft. (laughs) You won't be getting across the water in mine, but let's just assume you have the skill to make it so that it floats. And you get on the raft and you go across to the other shore and you're safe. Still, it's good. What do you do with the raft? Do you keep it? Do you carry it with you on your back so that you can have a raft if you ever happen upon a great expansive waterway? Or do you leave it there, let it sink? You're done with it. And the Buddha actually compared Dhamma, and I'm saying the retreat, to the raft. You leave it there. The raft is to, the purpose of the raft is to get you across the river, across the waterway. It's for crossing. It's not for holding. So this retreat is not for us to live here. It's for getting us out into the world uh, with a steadier mind. That's it. And in terms of Has the raft been good? All the effort you put into your raft and get your little grass stuck in there and twigs and branches and got it together, did it carry you across to the other shore? You know it did. I can feel it in the room in the morning. It's like pristine still. We could drop a pin and you could hear it in the room. Even if your mind is still moving and shaking and talking, the body has found its way to stillness, and it's settled. So the purpose of the retreat, it has been uh, accomplished. It has been attained. It's here. And it's time to let that raft go, let the raft sink and uh, leave it there. And we're moving on into a completely different space. I know it's not easy. On one hand, we know we need to leave the raft because we don't want to carry the raft no more than we would want to carry everything, the whole retreat center and all the accoutrements uh, <laughs> and everything. We'd have to drag it all with us everywhere. We don't want to do that. And it's not easy to do this. It was not easy for the Buddha either. When the Buddha... Uh, uh, remember, Bonte was saying how the Buddha actually um, uh, spent a week staring at the tree when he awakened. And in the course of him staring at this tree, he had a moment when a thought arose in him that he should um, teach. I should teach this. I think he thought about his friends or just people in general. Um, I should teach this what I've learned. He understood what had happened to him, and he understood what he had attained. So it's not so much that we in this room want to teach, but you have this understanding about suffering, and there's this impulse to go home, tell everybody. This is what he said. (laughs) That was (laughs) short-lived. He said, The Dhamma that I have attained is deep, hard to see, hard to realize. You know this. Peaceful, refined. It is beyond the scope of conjecture. Subtle. It's to be experienced by the wise. But this generation or in my case, my peeps at home, delight in attachment, is excited by attachment, enjoys attachment. And for a generation, delighting in attachment, 
excited by attachment, enjoying attachment. This, that conditionality that we have learned and dependent co-arising, hard to see. This state, too, is hard to see. The resolution of all the fabrications, the relinquishment of all the acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, even the word dispassion, disenchantment. In this room, we understand it. Out there, they don't understand that word. Dispassion, cessation, unbinding. He said, and if I were to teach the Dhamma and if others would not understand, that would be troublesome for me and troubles tiresome for me. So then he said, enough now with teaching what only with difficulty I reach. The Dhamma is not easy by those overcome with aversion and passion. What is a too subtle, deep, hard to see, going against the flow, those delighting in passion, cloaked in the mass of darkness, won't see it. And once he came to that resolution, he decided to settle back down. And his mind inclined to dwelling at ease and not teaching. It's sort of that, what I hear from you, this kind of, let's just settle here. More than one person has said they want to move in. They just want to stay here, not going nowhere. Settled in to the ease. And I don't hold this as you're caught in attachment to the place. It's the settled mind. Your mind is settled where it's at. It's content with this moment. It's content with the simplicity of retreat life. It's content with not having a lot. Content without TV, without going out, without all of that. It's content where it's at in this present moment. And in that contentment, we could just settle here. But of course, I'm telling you this sutta because a deva overheard the Buddha saying he was not going to teach and the deva had a moment of panic (laughs) and went to, uh, like showed himself to the Buddha and said, no, 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 no. You have to go and teach. And so he asked the Buddha to just take a moment to consider the world he would leave uh, in darkness if he didn't teach. And so the Buddha kind of, I think, thought about his friends. And some people um, with a little dust in his eyes, in their eyes. I didn't bring the other part. I'm sorry. Some beings that have a little dust in their eyes and some beings that have a lot of dust in their eyes. Some beings that would be hard to teach and some beings who would be easy to teach. Some beings who would be, you know, uh, susceptible and easy and some beings who would just be rough and mean. And he knew that he was going to go into that kind of a world and out of compassion for the beings that would be easy to teach with a little dust in their eyes, wanting to learn. Those are the beings that he went to teach for. Beings like you and me. It doesn't matter how much dust we have in our eyes or how good we are at this or whether we can get still or not or did I get to the level of John I want to get to. It doesn't matter about all of that. It's the idea that we would come to a place to try to steady the mind and be in the present moment. And in that he decided to go and teach. So this place we are at, this wanting to rest in the contentment of mind, after cultivating finally that contentment, makes sense. But since we are householders, and we are, our lives are basically uh, all about the kerfuffle and confusion out in the world, then what we really need is a, a way uh, to take back what we've gathered here 
back to our world that we live in, this world that's otherwise uh, quite difficult to be in. We don't need to be a different person. We need to be the same person. Because you probably have figured out that in the course of the time you were here, you didn't magically become Susie. I always wanted to be like somebody different. Not Tuere, but maybe a Teresa or Diane. Anybody. I could be a Marianne. I have never turned into anybody other than Tuere. <laughs> always Tuere. If you were to ask my family, Tuere's been doing this practice for 30 years. Is she different? They would say, mm, no. <laughs> She's the same Tuere. <laughs> but they would also tell you, I'm not mean. I'm not mean. I'm not as vengeful. I'm not as cursed as I used to be. I'm way more generous, way more giving, connecting, kinder to them. I listen way more now than I used to. So how is it that I am the same person that I've always been and something is different? That's what I think this practice does. This is what I think we're taking home. So I want to tell you, when I first used to go home, when I first started going on retreat, my very first retreat was in 2005. I did a people of color sit here at uh, IMS. And I was open. It was five days. I think it was probably four days plus the half day, half day. But it was like by the time I got into the retreat, it was over. And yet I was so open, so free, so happy that I had never told anyone that I was going on a retreat. I told everybody that I was going on a work conference because... The world I grew up in, the world I lived in, there was no Dhamma. There was no, there was no Buddhist, no practitioners, no kind of, um, no, no one in my family, no one in my work life, none of my friends, no one practiced with me. The only people that practiced with me was at Seattle Insight. I would go once a week on Mondays to hear Rodney give a Dhamma talk. It was a two-hour session, 200 people, all white, me sitting in the back, and no one spoke to each other, sort of like this. No one talked. It's very quiet. And those days, I think most of our community centers are, are more engaging now than they used to be. But in the beginning, they were patterned after IMS. So just like you come on a retreat, noble silence, you'd go to your community practice, noble silence, two hours. Sat next to people, mostly dark lit. I don't say nothing to them. They don't say nothing to me. We just sit here, do our meditation, listen to Rodney, go home. But in that space, somehow I begin to get intimate with something that I didn't quite understand, so I couldn't quite explain it to the rest of my world. There was a practice world, and then there was the rest of my world, because I couldn't really articulate what was happening. It's sort of what you already know here. You've sat next to people, you have this love for people, this compassion, this connection to people you've never spoken, you don't even know their name. And yet they feel like your brother, your sister, auntie, uncle, grandma, grandpa. It looks like your niece, your nephew. And you've never spoken to them. But there's something about the silence and being together that we're cultivating something here that we become intersected with, intertwined with. And there's an idea that you're going to leave that behind. But it's not really that way. So 
when I would come out of retreat, I started going to more of them then all the time. And every time I would come out of retreat, I, my sister would have what's called my coming out of silence party, like Eids at the end of Ramadan. <laughs> and so I would leave Cloud Mountain. I would drive to my sister's house to help get the party together. And I swear, within two, three hours, I'm cussing out everybody, <laughs> yelling. I'm overloaded. And I didn't know. I would try. I would sit in my car. Okay, Tori, don't get caught up in it. Don't get caught. Just go in. Be peaceful. I mean, I just left this. Oh. Every week, every time I go on a retreat, I do like three retreats a year, every time. I could not understand what was happening, why I could not keep it together, why I could not keep from yelling. How come I could be so peaceful at retreat and I couldn't at home? And one day, my car would not work. And so I... Um, called my sister and said, we have to put the party off because my car won't work. And someone's giving me a ride and they can't take me to your house. So we had to put it off two weeks. But guess what happened? Two weeks now, I'm settled. Not so sensitive. Not so over the top. I didn't even know. I thought it was me. And it's not me. I was sensitive. But I didn't understand that until I had a moment of being outside of it, until something changed. And I began to realize that I had to find my way in practice. So I looked for some suttas. And there is a sutta, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. Uh, Bhante will help me, but it's Digajanu, I think is what his name is. He's a householder, and he goes and he asks the Buddha how he wants to know what the Dhamma is for people like us who are householders, for our happiness and well-being. And the way he describes us is we're lay people who enjoy sensuality, living crowded with spouses and children, enjoying expensive fabrics and oils, wearing garlands, scent creams, handling gold and silver. (laughs) So clearly, he's talking about sex, money, and luxury. That's what he's talking about. And he wants to say, how can we live in happiness and well-being with the Dhamma? And the Buddha did not kind of, this is, he's a monk, sort of like a, uh, when, when I listen to Bhante talk, it, there's no shame in this. There's no judgment that a householder life is somehow less than this monastic life. And instead, the Buddha gave him some advice on how to actually live and enjoy the Dhamma in his householder life. He said that uh, you just get involved in a meaningful life. Just have a meaningful life. So get involved in your life. Be a part of it. Pay attention. Acquire wealth and take care of that which you have. Told him to cultivate good friendships. Uh, People, Kalyanamita, like uh, Shelley was talking about, with people who support your practice and help you learn to see wisdom. So even though I didn't talk to people at Sims, that's what they were doing. They were helping me see the see my uh, wisdom, discern wisdom, simply because we were sitting in a room silent. And in that quiet, I could hear my own mind. I could hear what was happening. And he said, uh, cultivate an attunement with one's livelihood so that you live within your means, you're not stingy, you're not overly generous, but you're attuned with your livelihood itself. So that's the basic structure. And then he said, you sustain these four qualities. And this is really what I want to point to. So one, you have this conviction of your practice. 
So that means to me what I learned is everything is practice. Everything, everything, everything. It's just like here on retreat. When we're on retreat, you come here, even eating the peas is practice. And you take the time to eat oatmeal with a level of practice. It feels like practice. That's all we've done here. It's really just a room with some cushions, and there's a dining room with some tables and some chairs. But it all feels very sacred because everything is practice. And so when you go home, you can do the same thing. Everything is practice. It doesn't matter what you're eating. It's practice. He said you have this conviction of your ethical conduct. So here in this environment, we maintain the five precepts. We, we maintain those five precepts in and out. You may or may not have lived up to them the way you would think, but still, the five precepts uh, cover all of us. We all kind of stepped into this together. So when you go home, I'm going to talk about some ways to maintain some vows and precepts. You maintain this conviction of generosity. So there's an open-heartedness, and we all are connected to the Brahma-viharas, in and out with the Brahma-viharas. And there's a conviction of wisdom. So he said that you pay attention to the three characteristics and the four noble truths. And also, I think, uh, greed, hatred, and delusion. So even for... A householder, he's saying, pay attention to your life as practice. Pay attention to the five precepts that you're living out of. Keep the Brahma Viharas with you and watch the three characteristics. Pay attention to this rising and falling, this impermanence, the dukkha, and when you're caught up in selfing and when you're not, and just the basic four noble truths. In this, I begin, when I read this sutta, it was the first sutta I'd ever read where the Buddha was talking to a householder. And so most of all the suttas I had read were all Buddhas talking to monks. So this was the Buddha talking to a householder, basically saying, this is how you practice. You're just living in your world. And so what I realized when I left retreat was I lost the container. So here, there's just a container that we all live in. And in that container, we feel safe and protected. And then we go home, and there's this felt sense that somehow I'm out of the container, and it's all wild, and I'm going to lose everything. So I want to help, in these last few minutes, help point to how you can structure your container. Here on retreat, it's our intention that we move through. Because in truth, there were times when you weren't really paying attention in your sit, you weren't really doing the walking, you're sitting there watching tea. Many a days went by and you're not practicing at all. You're in your room, kind of reading, doing whatever. But there is this intention to be here and this intention that keeps getting sparked again and again and again and again. And what you don't really see until the end of the retreat is that your intention gradually shifted your conduct. It gradually shifts your conduct the way uh, a motor is. So when you put intention with right Effort, it becomes like a motor and it begins to send us into a certain direction. It begins to cultivate uh, an awareness of the present moment. It becomes like a compass and it guides us on where to go. And it creates uh, a way of being that we don't necessarily have to constantly make ourselves be. 
So I did not um, make myself get kind. I set an intention to be kind and kept looking in situations when I was not kind and in situations when I was kind. And I followed this thing, this sutra that I found called, uh, it's a discourse on what the Buddha called, well, he didn't call it, the English definition, the English translation is effacement. And effacement, I don't use that word, but effacement is this um, rubbing away of something so that it becomes insignificant. So I do not have the time to tell you about all 44 vows. And that might seem like 44 vows. <laughs> no way I can do that. I can remember when I first saw this, I thought there's no way. But actually, we have been doing these 44 vows all this entire retreat period. It is the five precepts, except it adds uh, five more speeches like don't lie, don't be malicious, don't be harsh, and we do it all of that, don't gossip. Uh, we do it all with um, a noble silence. It's the Eightfold Path, which we've been practicing. In fact, Bonte was checking it off the whole time. It's the five hindrances. We've been paying attention to those. It's the, there are 13 defilements of mind. We've been watching the defilements of mind out of greed, hatred, and delusion. Seven factors of awakening. And uh, this personality view, right view. That's it. It really isn't 44 rules. It's 44 ways of being. And the reason why I like this sutta and the way the Buddha said it and why I started using it is because what he says is, I'm only going to read a couple, but it's 44. He says, others will be harmful. We shall not be harmful here. Thus effacement can be done. And he just lists them. Others will kill living beings. We shall abstain from killing living beings here. And he lists all these kind of ways in which the Dhamma comes alive in our lives. And I remember realizing that it wasn't, it's not about me being a certain way, but it's about me having an intention to live a certain way. And I just watched when I was within that vow and when I was outside of it. That's it. I don't have to judge myself one way or the other. It's like we're learning. It's sort of like that game. I might be dating myself, but do you guys know the game Operation Okay, so everybody knows what that is. If you don't know what it is, you have to raise your hand. But So that game, you're trying your best to get the little bones in and out of this person. <laughs> right? But if you hit the edge, light comes on. Hit this edge, light comes on. And gradually, you learn how to get the bone out without the two edges. And in a way, this is what I think life is doing with us. So we come on retreat, and we get still, and we get subtle, and we can feel harm. We have to be able to feel harm. It's like we have to be able to light up when we're outside of the Dhamma. We have to be able to know we're outside of the Dhamma. And when you then go out in your world, you're going to feel this eh, outside of the Dhamma. Eh, outside of the Dhamma. <laughs> That's what you're feeling. That's what's happening. You keep feeling, 
what seems like harm, but it's not harm. I mean, it, it may be harm, but it's not to harm you. It's to tell you something has happened. Here, you don't feel that. Because here, we're kind of all living in the precepts, and we're all kind of settled, and you kind of know when it's time to go in the hall, when it's time to walk, because of all the bells, all the containers set up for you to learn how to steady yourself. And then you start getting steady. When you go out in the world, that container is gone unless you have these vows that you live within that says, this is how I want to be. And you'll feel when you're outside of that. That's what that felt sense is. That felt sense of getting triggered, ill will, anger, aversion, all that stuff that starts happening, wishing, wanting, all of that. What feels like harm is actually this bell telling you where you are, how far removed you are from your body. Are you back settled? Can you get back to being in the present moment, content with the body? You're feeling outside of it. And in order to do that, we almost have to have everything be sacred. Everything has to be sacred like it is here. It's sacred. You have to have a sense of the preciousness of your life. Because here on this retreat, you can feel the preciousness of your life. You can appreciate everything that went into allowing you to be here. And then as soon as we get out, we can get stuck in our privilege and forget that part of being free requires us to feel the pain of dukkha. It requires that so we know when we are off-center, off-kilter. We have to feel dukkha in order to know we're on the path. So I'm going to leave you with a poem here. This is uh, my, one of my favorites. I have so many, but this is another favorite poem. <laughs> this is called Longing by Julie Codwadler Stops. She says, Consider the black pole warbler. Now, a black pole warbler, just in case you don't know, because I didn't know, it's about this big of a bird. So the wingspan is about this big. And the black pole warbler tips the scales at one ounce before she migrates, taking off from the seacoast to our east, flying higher and higher, ascending two or three miles during her 80 hours of flight until she lands in Tobago, north of Venezuela, three days older and weighing half as much. She flies over open ocean almost the whole way, so no rest breaks. She's not so different from us. The arc of our lives is a mystery, too. We don't understand. We cannot see what guides us on our way, that longing that pulls us towards light. Not knowing, we fly onward, hearing the dull roar of the waves below. Now, the reason why I like this poem is because I bet money that black pole warbler does not complain. (laughs) She is not whining about the wingspan of the other birds that could have made that flight a lot easier. 
But you can tell with us as a, our mental minds, we start complaining the minute we hit that door. <laughs> the minute we start out on our migration, so this is a migration. She doesn't have any choice in the matter. This is her life. This is what she has to do. Could you imagine the whining, complaining weight of that that we would do to ourselves if we had to take on this? This is what I think we have to let go of. Not so much the difficulty of life, but the whining and complaining about it. That life is difficult. This is what we've come to understand here. And what we've come to learn is we're steady with it. We're still with it. We can be still with that difficulty. Not to complain. It's not... It's not so much whether we could have some perfect life, because the Buddha had a perfect life, clearly. He still was not happy. But there's something about learning how to be in life. What he left, when he left the stillness, he taught for 40 years. He had all kinds of difficulties. People tried to kill him. His own family members tried to kill him. So people tried to kill him. It's not, do I have stillness or I don't have stillness? It's about learning how to bring this stillness into your life. And you won't learn it by me telling you because I don't know your life. The only way you're going to learn it is by living your life, rubbing up against the edges, finding your way to this level of steadiness, present moment contentment with it, and staying within your vows. Just staying within the container of your vows and find your way. I don't need to tell you anything else because we have already seen it. We already know. It's just trusting that every time you so-called mess up, you're actually learning. You're learning what's in the vow, what's out. What's within your sacred understanding, what's outside. And gradually this intention to stay within the precepts or the vows, stay within this certain sort of um, sacredness you put on your life, you'll know when you're in and when you're out. So let's sit a moment here. Don't ever forget the Black Pole Warbler. Thank you so much for your kind attention. Um, we will have some walking, and then we'll come back and uh, just have a little bit. It's not going to be much longer than our normal sit uh, for the chanting, for those of you that want to come. Great.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.